0: We had, um, one such case where, uh, an individual had opened a box of, or a bag of pistachios and found, uh, a worm inside one of the pistachios, threw it in a live scanner vial, submitted it. Uh, I was analyzing, came back with a species, and they contacted the producer to say, I found a bug in there. And they said, happens from time to time. It's most likely this, it's this species, a known pest of, pistachio in California, where it was grown. Um, but the DNA barcode said it was a different species, one that was usually found in Costa Rica.
1: This week on Science for the People, we are diving into the world of DNA barcoding. We'll learn about the International Barcode of Life with Dr. Mirdad Hajibabai, Associate Professor in the Department of Integrative Biology and the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Wealth. Then we'll be discussing how you can contribute to the field of DNA barcoding with Sujivan Ratnasingham, associate director of informatics and adjunct professor at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. With me is Dr. Merdad Hajibabai. Merdad, welcome to Science for the People.
2: Hi. How are you?
1: Kid, how are you?
2: So uh, happy to be with you today.
1: So Merdad, you represent Canada on the scientific steering committee for something called the International Barcode of Life Consortium. And from now on, we're going to refer to that as Eyeball for short. Um, in fact, you helped to establish it. So can you give us a brief overview of Eyeball and your role with it?
2: Yeah, so eyeball um, is uh, a coalition of uh, scientists and uh, science uh, uh, managers uh, from around the world that uh, uh, goes back to, uh, Quite a number of years, uh, almost uh, uh, 18 years ago, uh, this idea of using uh, DNA uh, sequences to identify organisms um, started to uh, to build up uh, around a publication that came uh, from uh, Paul bear's lab at University of Guelph. And uh, at that time, I, I joined the lab uh, early in 2003 to uh, to work uh, there as a postdoctoral fellow. And uh, obviously, uh, like any other uh, new ideas, uh, it went up and down in terms of uh, you know receptivity and uh, funding and so on. And we had quite a long journey to to get here. Uh, like barcoding is now established as a um, an identification method, a scientific uh, approach for uh, identifying biodiversity, and uh, there are a number of initiatives, and Eyeball um, is uh, the largest one and uh, the one that is rooted in uh, the origin of it's uh, from our university at Guelph, and uh, um, and again uh, it's uh, it's now a spread uh, around the world and. Uh, uh, barcoding as a technique has evolved, and as uh, like uh, using uh, more modern technologies in genomics, computational uh, uh, approaches. Uh, but the concept and and the idea is to uh, to facilitate understanding biodiversity um, through the use of uh, DNA and genomics information. And so, uh, uh, so we are uh, now establishing uh, various types of uh, programs and um, an eyeball is sort of an umbrella uh, consortium to to manage those uh, uh, either in every different countries or regions or uh, depending on the applications, uh, there are various types of projects uh, and and uh, project organizations for um, for conducting uh, barcoding and uh, and and uh, making use of this uh, this approach.
1: Can you go into some detail about your personal involvement with iBull?
2: Yes. So as I mentioned, I, uh, after I uh, finished my PhD in the University of Ottawa, I, I actually attended a, a, a presentation by by Paul at uh, in Ottawa uh, and in Museum of Nature, and uh, I uh, I decided to join his team. Uh, at that time, obviously this was uh, a very early stage and uh, we were building uh, the lab and so i I think it was uh, it was a great opportunity for me but also uh, a risky one because it was a new idea new project but uh, I felt I can contribute given my expertise in molecular evolution and bioinformatics and uh, and so uh, uh, so I moved to Guelph as a postdoctoral fellow and um, and i uh, I uh, helped uh, Paul and, and other colleagues uh, to, uh, to sort of establish uh, uh, barcoding uh, networks and uh, international work uh, you know within eyeball and uh, but I also built my own uh, research program. Uh, I transitioned into a uh, professor position and uh, I established my lab and my lab is um, uh, mostly involved with uh, with the newer sequencing technologies and, and and using barcoding in more larger scale environmental and ecological uh, analysis and um, so we established a new approach called meta barcoding which takes advantage of the newer sequencing technology and it does not require um separating organisms so it's sort of a a, a derivative of barcoding but still sort of rooted in the concept so i uh, so I, I continue my research. I have a research group uh, with postdocs, uh, graduate students, technicians, and uh, as uh, as you mentioned, I'm also uh, affiliated to the Department of Integrative Biology. I do teaching um, and uh, involvement in various uh, academic activities. Uh, but within the eyeball, I um, I've had various roles uh, in terms of chairing different committees, and currently I um, uh, I uh, coordinate the uh, the air that we have in Canada with various uh, projects various agencies and uh, and again I, I sit on the science committee and uh, I work closely because the secretariat of eyeball is placed is based in Guelph in or center for biodiversity genomics so, uh, so there is a group of us that are very much uh, associated to this initiative from from the beginning of it and uh, and uh, we will help uh, the scientific community, or uh, agencies, NGOs, industry, whoever is interested in this, uh, to uh, to build up linkages, to educate them, to to do R and D and various uh, ways to uh, to to get the message across and to uh, to build this uh, up.
1: From what I understand, the major purpose of IBOL is to create a database, right? A database of these DNA barcodes for various species that can be shared among scientists around the world is that correct
2: yes it is it is a it is an important part of of this system so uh, so in order to be able to identify um, unknown specimens you know you you collect in your uh, backyard or uh, you know in a, in a in a site that you have species that uh, are endangered or you want to monitor uh, Various types of biodiversity. So one key part of uh, the system is to have reference uh, to compare the sequences of those. And that's kind of referred to as a barcode library or a DNA barcode library. And so it's central to the mission. And by building this uh, uh, reference library, uh, you will be able to then go back to the same places or when you go to some other sites and you find some unknown samples, it will allow you to... Um, identify them very quickly so you can you can compare this to like if you have your uh, museum samples or your uh, herbarium samples so these are the digital sort of sequence information that are also connected to the um, uh, to the images of the organisms to their geo- geo- uh, reference sort of data uh, and and also other types of metadata and uh, so it's a central uh, hub for accessing uh, all of this information is kind of like a Facebook for biodiversity—but you have all the DNA uh, information that you can compare against uh, when you have um, unknown specimens. So that's uh, that's a central uh, mission for Eyeball and uh, for barcoding because it's uh, it's really important uh, to be able to um, to connect uh, the um, the organisms that we find to the knowledge that we have about the biology or ecology of these organisms so that's uh, uh, that reference library allows us to 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 make these um, uh, identifications
1: using barcodes I wanted to dig in a bit into the motivation behind creating this reference library why do you think it's important to identify as many species as possible
2: well um, from a scientific standpoint the species are are units of biodiversity and uh like there is considerable debate about the uh, definition of a species i mean that's uh uh, within the scientific community but by and large we uh uh, we have accepted the species to be the units uh and uh that's been studied and uh, used for uh hundreds of years and sort of the modern taxonomy is like built around this concept of the species and so um In order for us to, uh, I mean, the species identification is central to any, uh, any type of biological uh, analysis or inference or question uh, from scientific standpoint, from socioeconomic uh, side of things, uh, from the food that we consume to, uh, to pharmaceuticals that uh, come from uh, different organisms. Many of them, uh, you need to have uh, certainty around what organisms they are, and the identification becomes really important. Or when it comes to infectious diseases, you know, pathogens or pests. Uh, uh, so we really need to uh, to understand uh, the, the biological units that uh, that either are useful for us, or are harming, harming us, or uh, are um, uh, key to our ecosystem's function and uh and uh, well-being and so uh so that's why uh species uh identification it's uh, it's so key and so uh, and that's not been easy um uh, uh for many many uh, uh applications or questions and uh like we are really not uh, capable uh of uh just picking uh, any, any sample, let's say, you know, a gram of soil or, uh, or a liter of water and just very quickly say what species are there, you know, are there any, um, any harmful organisms? Are there any, uh, organisms that we need to protect? Uh, or are there any, ch- and, and then it gets more complicated when, uh, you want to move into a monitoring scenario, uh, and that requires, uh, uh, repeated uh, sampling and identification uh, to uh, to be able to then monitor the change or, or or have a surveillance of what is going on in and um, in, uh, in a site or an ecosystem so uh, that requires even more robust uh, identification uh, approaches so you can you can uh, definitely use uh, expertise uh, of various uh, uh, different Groups that uh, of researchers, or uh, uh, in this case taxonomists, or uh, or some of the uh, some of the other researchers that have uh, have learned how to identify uh, identify various groups of organisms, but that requires a lot of time and uh, logistically it might not be easy to to do this. Um, so we need to move into uh, approaches that will allow us to uh, to identify uh, organisms. Uh, faster and and to scale it to the applications that then uh, uh, require uh, like allows us to do monitoring uh, of their changes so uh, that's really a, an important motivation for uh, for bar coding and and one and and uh, um, the reason it uh, got uh, quite a lot of attention obviously after a period of you know and any method has limitations so um, and i'm uh, i I, I i can say that within the limitations of barcoding even uh, it's been a- extremely powerful to uh, to identify um, to help us identify by bi- units of biodiversity on various systems and for various applications so it's it's both scientific and uh, so, uh, socio-economic and uh, I think that's been uh, for both cases. We have lots of uh, qu- lots of examples that barcoding has been applied.
1: I think before we go any further, we need to. I, would, I think it would be helpful if we go into the process of DNA barcoding. So, can you explain how DNA barcoding works?
2: The process, uh, like it starts by uh, by sampling. Oftentimes, uh, samples are. Uh, uh, biological samples you know like an insect uh, or uh, or uh, or a leaf uh, or uh, or a mushroom and uh, we need a very small amount of biological sample to obtain the dna uh from that sample so uh, typically you know if we we get a, a small insect we we need a small tissue sample and these insects that you know they go to the museums and 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 being curated um like we we need a very small uh, piece of the tissue of that insect and and we also have methods that we don't even need to get the actual uh, tissue we can dip uh, the organism into a buffer into a lysis buffer uh, that sort of uh, solves the, the DNA in in the solution and then we can use that solution to access the DNA um and once we have the DNA when once we have the sample and uh, we go through a uh, biochemical process to extract this DNA and, uh, and then uh, we use a, a molecular, uh, uh, enzymatic reaction called polymerase chain reaction, PCR. Uh, that's also used in a lot of diagnostic tests these days. Uh, and, uh, that will allow us to, um, to, uh, to zoom in on the markers, the DNA barcode sort of, uh, gene or genes, uh, and, um, and amplify that signal, that DNA. So there's like a photocopy machine uh, for for the DNA. So we we make a lot of copies of it uh, within the, um, uh, the, the the reaction tube or test tube. It's a very small sort of a scale. These are all happening in microliter, and um, and then um, then is the uh, the reading of the DNA, which is this DNA sequencing. That uh, is another sort of uh, reaction. That uh, again, it's various types of technologies that now exist for it. And, um, and once we, we we read that, then we basically uh, get the uh, ACGT, these sort of alphabets of DNA, uh, in uh, in something that is very similar to a text file. That uh, uh, and there are some quality scores associated and uh, to it. And then that that will be or digital sort of. Uh, Signature of, of the species, the barcode, uh, and, um, which is a very, very small portion of its genome, uh, that we have read for identifying, uh, the organism. And, uh, that goes to the database together with all these other metadata and images of the specimens and, uh, and is stored there. And, um, and as this process repeats and, uh, you know, and usually we do this in, uh, uh, in sets of, uh, you know, once we get the specimens, it's sort of, there is a logistical and sort of a workflow that, uh, we, uh, we will sort of bring these, uh, to, uh, the PCR, DNA extraction, the PCR and sequencing. But it happens in units of 96 or 384 in a high throughput, uh, fashion. And, uh, so that it facilitates uh, scaling it up and being able to, uh, to process. A large number of these uh, these specimens in, in a facility like uh, the one in Guelph or in other facilities around the world, uh, that this is happening. So you you can really do this at any scale. I mean, I'm I, I'm explaining it more on a uh, sort of a larger scale, but uh, but it can be done on like much smaller numbers of specimens that one needs to identify. And currently, there are uh, technologies that allows us to do this in uh, in a mobile lab or in a uh, in a um, in a more sort of uh, the same point that you want to identify the organism in the field or in uh, in remote sites but but the process is is very similar uh, essentially you need to uh, extract the dna amplify the signal and sequence uh, read the sequence and uh, and then place it in a database and if it's an unknown specimen you will uh, go to a database or use a computational tool that will allow you then to compare your unknown sequence to all those other sequences that are in the database. And that's the process of bioinformatics, uh, which, uh, which, uh, is like a database search. Uh, uh, but uh, there are algorithms that like will, will allow us to put some certainty on, on these identifications. And, uh, we can, uh, we can say with like, even use some similarities and relatedness of these organisms to, uh, to, for example, say what, uh, uh, what group they are related to. So if you don't even have the exact match in the database, we can say what is the closest match. And that that's uh, uh, very helpful, given that you may not have the exact same organism in the library.
1: Is it possible to identify a brand new species using DNA barcoding? Has that happened before?
2: Yes. I mean, it's uh, part of the uh, excitement about uh, having a new tool, uh is discovering new species or discovering new units of biodiversity. And, uh, and it actually was, uh, like one of the big, uh, 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 motivations for, for using DNA barcoding for research communities also being able to go through all these specimens that they collect in various parts of the world. And, uh, it helps them, uh, identify them and, and discover new species or, or in many cases, uh, we've had, uh, species that using, um, you know, characteristic like morphological, physical kind of appearance of those specimens, sort of the th- more traditional, conventional approaches, uh, we could not uh, say how many species, we all put them as one species, but then when you use the DNA barcoding, and uh, you will see that they're uh, different in their DNA barcode sequences, uh, then you will go and gather other types of information from their habitats, from the food they eat, or um, a, a, or or give it like a closer look uh, under the microscope and like like look at their characters more uh, carefully, and you will see that uh, yes, you're uh, you have uh, more than one species in this group of specimens, and uh, there are some really uh, key uh, publications uh, and discoveries that came um, from barcoding and continues to. Uh, because we have a lot of unknown biodiversity on on the planet, and uh, uh, and uh, a key application of DNA barcoding is to facilitate uh, identifying those and uh, and um, and and allows us to better uh, understand you know uh, where we need to conserve uh, biodiversity and and uh, like again you cannot protect something that you can't measure so. So that's the key thing for us to be able to bring those uh, uh, robust measurements through DNA barcoding for uh, for various uh, sectors of society that are uh, interested and, and are mandated to, to protect biodiversity and, um, and environment.
1: And what kind of samples are needed to collect DNA? How big do these samples have to be?
2: Yeah, the... Um, we can work with a very wide range of samples. Remember, here you are sampling for DNA, and DNA is a very, very tiny mo- molecule, and is there are many, many copies of it. Uh, essentially, every cell in our body carries uh, the DNA, and uh, so we uh, we need very small amount of samples. And uh, like if you have like a little uh, fly. Typically, a, a small leg of a fly is, is enough for us. And, and there are some uh, samples that we can't even easily see with, the, with our eyes, but still there is plenty of DNA in those. So, um, so yeah, and it can be a, a partial sample, you know, from a small leaf, for example. Uh, As I said, all all the different types of tissues and and different organisms they do have DNA, and there are examples of using barcoding in um, in in various types of samples. So it's uh, it's it's very robust in this case. So you don't need, like, for example, to have uh, flowers of the plants to be able to say what plants they are. Um, uh, The same way that uh, you know uh, we we do this in sort of traditional approaches, Uh, you can have like any type of tissue, and uh, once you read the DNA barcode, uh, you'll be able to tell uh, what a species it is.
1: But it's not necessary to harm the organism or the specimen um, in order to collect its DNA, is that right?
2: Well, I mean, it's, uh, there is the sample collection part, and uh, there are methods that people have come up with in terms of getting uh, DNA of. Uh, of organisms with without sort of especially on the larger ones you know uh like like saliva or blood you know large mammals and uh, that that type of organisms but on tiny uh, life like bugs or uh, and some other groups you you get an actual physical specimen an individual and that goes into the museum for curation and we use a very small portion of that but for bigger ones that uh, we want to make sure that uh, we have methods that are not invasive to those organisms.
1: Let's get into the research programs of IBOL. So under the umbrella of IBOL, there are three major programs, Barcode 500K, Bioscan, and the Planetary Biodiversity Mission. Can you give us a brief overview of each of these three programs?
2: Yeah, the uh, these are actually the uh, sort of the... Uh, the continuum of, of barcoding uh, initiative within the Eyeball consortium. So they are really not like uh, coexisting programs. They are like barcode uh, 500K uh, was what the the, um, the program uh mandates in um, earlier years of uh, Eyeball. I think it sort of started uh, in um, if I remember, it was 2000. 12 i'm I'm not sure about that but it's a it's a project that ended and uh and now um finished by 500,000 species uh, being barcoded uh and um and 25 countries participated and uh, so Bioscan is sort of building on the success of this uh, project and lessons learned and also uh, based on uh, new analytical uh, capabilities of uh of sequencing and 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 uh, more advanced bioinformatics uh so so bioscan is the current project that uh will uh will bring this uh coverage of the species to 2.5 million uh by 2026 and um and then the planetary biodiversity mission is sort of our moon uh moonshot project which uh is, uh, sort of again, we're building, the uh, the capacity and sort of we are la- moving towards launching, the the planetary biodiversity, uh, mission that is, uh, uh, is hopefully, uh, going to deliver, uh, the, uh, um, um, barcode, uh, coverage for all the species, all the eukaryotic multicellular species and, uh, by 2045. That's that's the plan.
1: Data that's being produced by these programs is it accessible to the public or is it only meant to be used by scientists?
2: No, it is accessible to public. I mean, from the the, the beginning, uh, that's been the uh, the mandate, and and most of our funding uh, uh, is uh, is actually uh, coming from uh, public uh, sources and. Uh, we uh, we produce these sequences. They go to the database. They go through a uh, validation phase, and uh, they they become available to public. And uh, many of them also will uh, be published within uh, scientific uh, in the scientific journals, uh, in, in uh, papers and uh, various reports. So uh, so the, the the goal is to have uh, these sequences available. Uh, you know in um, in various forms in the sequence itself, you know, in publications, the information comes in the publications and so on as well.
1: How are people using the data from this database, aside from identifying biodiversity?
2: Well, there is quite a lot of research uh, that's uh, rooted in um, in DNA barcoding. And as I mentioned, there's uh, scientific questions uh, that uh, are in various disciplines. Uh, they, they do require... Uh, 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 robust species identification and biodiversity identification. And, uh, I can give you a couple of examples, you know, for example, in, um, in understanding the ecosystem health and the status of ecosystems, uh, or researchers use, uh, uh, these, uh, groups of organisms that they call them bioindicators. And this is some of the work that I do in my lab is, uh, uh, is focused on this. And, uh, for example, in freshwater, we have, uh, this, uh, tiny mac- larvae of macroinvertebrates that's been used, uh, as a um, bioindicator group. And, um, but if you, uh, if you can, uh, if you access these organisms and, and look at them, you will see that it's not that easy to characterize them. And, And the models that ecologists have built uh, and environmental scientists have built for this biomonitoring program is all um, um, deeply um, dependent on species identification, identification of the biodiversity of these uh, bioindicators, because essentially they respond to environmental change, you know, differently. You know, if there's a chemical in the water or if there is some changes in the water flow, so these bugs… uh, uh, you know, their, uh, their, um, their composition, their biodiversity changes and, uh, because it's, it's their habitat is, is, is changing. And this has been, uh, uh, extremely, uh, useful approach, but, but also a bottleneck, especially in countries like, like ours in Canada to scale these, uh, types of, uh, monitoring, uh, projects. Uh, so barcoding has, uh, come, uh, to, uh, to really aid this endeavor by, uh, by establishing the barcode reference libraries of these bioindicators. Uh, um, and we have a good coverage for these in Canada and in, in some other countries. Um, so that means that now we can go to streams and rivers and just get some sediment samples and, uh, and without even going to get, uh, all the organisms separated and one by one sequenced, uh, we can just use now newer technique called uh, uh, next-generation sequencing and we've established this meta-barcoding approach. So we are using a uh, barcode library uh, to identify all these organisms through this uh, approach of bulk sequencing of uh, of these sediments and uh, and provide that information to, uh, to uh, like, for example, Environment and Climate Change Canada is one of our partners uh, in this project. Or to um, to various uh, uh, NGOs. So we work with uh, WWF Canada. Uh, we work with Living Lakes Canada, and so and and or any other group or uh, industries that uh, work in the in the region are regulated to to pro- to protect the uh, you know water um, uh, water resources in the region uh, and work with. Again, regulators, in this case, environment and climate change Canada can, can use these approaches as well. So this is one example. The other one uh, that, uh, again, is sort of focused on a very targeted, uh, species identification is to identify, um, uh, organisms that, uh, are, uh, considered, uh, endangered or, uh, invasive, uh, alien organisms in the system. Again, uh, we can, uh, we can uh, use uh, barcode library if you have a signature of those in your library, then any unknown specimen that comes uh, you can very quickly uh, barcode it and uh, and match it against the library and see if they belong to the checklist of your protected species or invasive species uh, or pests in agricultural uh, systems so uh, so yeah these are some of the uh, sort of more um. Uh, um kind of societal application but they do also have a lot of scientific uh uh, uh kind of inquiries that are based on uh, dna barcoding um and uh and the barcoding itself is uh, is like your, is a research program that uh, a number of researchers are working towards making this uh, system better from sampling uh, to uh uh sequencing and uh and also uh, a lot of work goes in um, uh, bioinformatics and uh, computational methods uh, that are used to uh, uh to identify and make sense of all this data that is generated in, in a very large volume
1: another application of dna barcoding that falls within the realm of conservation that I wanted to discuss with you is preventing wildlife crime, which is the illegal trade and sale of wildlife species. Uh, It's been suggested that the COVID-19 virus can be traced back to one or more bats that were illegally sold at a wet market in Wuhan, China. Do you think DNA barcoding could help prevent future pandemics like this one?
2: Well, I mean, identification is key uh for any type of regulation and uh i know that uh illegal wildlife um, trade or uh or uh or uh, um, application similars like uh the sources of uh food um in uh, fish uh markets or in fish sort of uh um uh seafood sort of markets it's been uh uh one of the key applications of barcoding and the one that got quite a lot of attention so uh so depending on the system uh, uh you know barcoding can can be used uh, for identifying uh, uh biological samples and, uh, and 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 again i think it's uh, it's an area that uh, i've seen a lot of uh, publications uh, to um, to use barcoding to to quickly and uh, uh identify Specimens and, uh, and see if they belong to a group that they need to be regulated or a group that, uh, you need to prevent, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's use and, and, various, uh, ways, uh, you know, a big, another big, uh, application related to this is natural health products as well. So it's, uh, again, um, uh, we and others have worked on, on this, uh, applications and I've seen a lot of uh, receptivity in, um, in various sectors of society for, for this type of applications.
1: One of the aims of IBOL is to support data-driven policy change for conservation and the sustainable use of biodiversity. Does that include international or national policies regarding wildlife trade?
2: Well, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the policies uh, obviously will take advantage of the available science and the uh, and uh, when we start advancing uh, science uh, we would like to be able to uh, to present it in um, in the frameworks of different policies and uh, like uh, a couple of years ago i uh, i um, i represented eyeball in uh, the cbd the um uh, the um, the united nations uh, uh, biodiversity convention and um, and there is a lot of discussions about how newer approaches like barcoding uh, can uh, can help uh, facilitate, you know, policy frameworks at different levels, from local to national and international. We work with uh, our own agencies in Canada, uh, with their scientists, with their science managers, with their uh, policy uh, experts, to uh, to inform them about what. Uh, um, uh, like these technologies and approaches uh, can provide, and then um, you know it, it has its own sort of uh, uh, process uh, of, of being adopted in, into a policy or or help shape up uh, uh, you know policies. So it's something that uh, again uh, we um, we as scientists you know we would like to make sure that we uh, we provide uh, you know what is uh, uh, you know doable what is uh, Feasible uh, and uh, pros and cons of different approaches uh, in our publications, in our reports, in our presentations, and and an important aspect of it is to to ensure that we uh, we reach out to our policymakers, to uh, uh, or leaders uh, on on those aspects to to inform them, and uh, and hopefully if, you know there is a way to get this uh, science uh, to be used uh, for the society. Uh, it would be great.
1: Why do you think it's more important than ever now to catalog all of biodiversity on the planet, considering the impacts of climate change and human wildlife conflict?
2: Well, I mean, it's uh, again, as I mentioned in um, in uh, previously, I mean, uh, we won't be able to uh, to protect to uh, to understand uh, if we can't measure something. So it's. Uh, it's really important to uh to be able to have a good understanding of our biodiversity and uh, and again with uh, with all these uh, reports that we uh, we see uh, coming from various uh, organizations uh, about uh, the decline in biodiversity in various uh, systems in various ecosystems uh i think it's it's really key to uh, to accelerate the rate of uh, discovering and identifying biodiversity and using new tools and uh, and being able to establish uh, reference libraries for these i mean one of the aspects of this is we have the dna um, of these organisms you know uh, that uh, are are kept you know with the, with the right kind of uh, frameworks in terms of uh, access and benefit sharing and so on within the eyeball and we have worked with uh, various international groups uh un and various other uh uh, you know organizations in 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 the nations that are involved to ensure that uh you know like we uh, we uh, we do this work so that it can be benefiting the societies uh uh, in future and and again these days uh, that uh we are um, under a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, scenarios of environmental stress from various uh, types of stressors uh, it's really important to to bring in uh, uh, better tools for environmental stewardship and and barcoding is uh, is a key tool for uh, for uh, for uh, biodiversity uh, analysis uh, there are other tools as well so we want to make sure that uh, we provide uh, the support uh, where it's really required when it comes to environmental stewardship.
1: That's a great answer. So where can our listeners go to learn more about the International Barcode of Life Consortium?
2: Well, iBOL has a website. I hope that you can provide that in your uh, in your podcast web, uh, web page and uh, that's the best place to go and uh, and from there you can access various uh, um, aspects of the work uh, or a story and uh, um, and uh, where it started and various programs and uh, different countries that are involved uh, uh, you will see a big map uh, and uh, like highlights the countries and also the impact and the resources um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, other uh, uh, you know websites. A lot of countries they have their own uh, barcode network and barcode sort of resources uh, that uh, in different languages. So it's um, uh, it's been uh, uh, it's been a privilege to work with uh, some of the international partners for us uh, in various corners of the world to see uh, barcoding is making an impact in their scientific inquiries in their societal. Um, uh, uh, aspects of the societal uh, sort of applications and uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, but the best place for eyeball, uh, uh is is our website and uh, within the University of Guelph uh, uh, we have uh, uh, the Center for Biodiversity Genomics and its own website. So the activities that we have uh, uh, in Guelph and orchestration of the work that uh, is happening within eyeball in Canada. Uh, is is also reflected some of the work that uh, we do in building capacity in uh, in uh, genomics and bioinformatics and collecting and sampling organisms they're all reflected as well in uh, our center for biodiversity genomics and and my own uh, research is uh is showcased in, in my labs websites and uh and again uh i'm happy to uh to uh, to answer questions of your audience if they reach out we have uh, we have a uh, uh, or manager of uh, communications that uh, is very um, very uh, uh, proactive and uh, uh, very able in uh, in developing uh, you know uh, relationships and answering questions and uh, connecting the, uh, enthusiasts to the right researchers in the countries uh, that the uh, we have within the consortium, so uh, so, so all of these uh, types of approaches.
1: Dad, thank you so much for your time.
2: Oh, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to talk about the uh, barcoding. It's always good.
1: Thanks. That was Meerdad Bye. Up next, we have Sujithan Ratnasingham. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra, With me now is Mr. Sujithan Ratnasingham, Associate Director of Informatics and Adjunct Professor at the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Wealth. Sujithan, welcome to Science for the People.
0: Thank you, Anika. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: In addition to being an Associate Director and Adjunct Professor, you are also the founder of the Life Scanner Project. Can you tell us a little bit about this project?
0: Sure. Um... So Life Scanner is a, a spin-out project from the Center for Biodiversity Genomics at the University of Guelph. And my help with this project was to take the work that we'd done over a decade on DNA barcoding and translate it out and make it accessible not just to uh, agencies and, and companies, but uh, most importantly to citizens. Um, and this was based on my experience with what GPS and and mobile technology did uh for for the current generation where it really transformed access to information um and life scanner addresses this problem of access to biodiversity information which uh through the lack of that information um people make bad decisions about um uh, about policy for management policy uh, around pest control around uh, import-export uh, of uh, species at risk. So um, I really wanted to take that technology and package it up and make it really usable and accessible, and uh, that that resulted in, in LifeScanner.
1: I would expect that DNA barcoding involves technology that's only available in labs dedicated to genomics research. So how is LifeScanner meant to make this kind of technology accessible to people outside of genomics research?
0: So you're you're right. Um, genomics capability has been uh, sort of uh, sort of closeted in uh, the high-profile large laboratory facility, but that is starting to change with more more genomic tools moving out. Um, but LifeScanner was meant to move it all the way out to the to the end user. So what we what we did with LifeScanner was um, uh, produce a, a sampling kit. That essentially would be foolproof, would require um, no technical expertise to, to sample tissue that was to be identified, um, and provided mobile software to connect that sample to data that was collected, where the sample was collected, imagery of the environment, um, as well as uh, any descriptive information. Um, and then that, that sample in a very uh, well-designed container would just be thrown in the mail, End up at a lab where it would be analyzed by uh, splitting open the cells to access the DNA, um, copying the DNA barcode, uh, many hundreds of thousands, two million times, and then reading it through a DNA sequencer before um, searching against a reference library to identify the species. And then once identified, that information, along with all the information collected, Um, about that species, um, would flow right back in a seamless manner to the individual's mobile device. So you get a ding and you would, uh, you'd be able to see what that, what that species was. So there's a delay from, um, collection to identification, but it makes it possible for the average person to walk into their backyard in, in, in the most common case, find something that, um, that they are unaware of, a past perhaps, and be able to identify it um, in a way that they couldn't possibly do before, even if they were spending hours searching on Google to try and get an accurate identification. So um, it brings together usability um, and uh, the information uh, management systems to be able to allow that that uh, data to flow uh, from the user and back to the user and wraps the lab process in such a way that it's both exposed but um, uh, still centralized and, and done in a very um, professional setting.
1: Do you have an idea of how many people have participated in the Life Scanner project up to this point?
0: Um, I have a rough idea. Um, uh, currently, I would say about 4,000 individuals have participated in the Life Scanner project. Um, there have been a few interesting cases that have caused that number to be as, as high as it is, because Life Scanner does get used quite a bit by NGOs and, um, uh, and, and companies to, to do things like test food, um, especially when it comes to seafood fraud. But we've had a few interesting partners on the Life Scanner project. One was the city of San Diego, which, um, procured a thousand life scanner kits and put them in uh, thirty of their public libraries and uh, uh, and implored students and kids and parents to check them out as if they were books and go out into the field and and collect species within the city of San Diego as part of a smart city project to document the life within uh, within the city and we actually uh, found a few dozen. New species to the database um, and species that were previously unknown um, from from the region. So that's you know that's obviously going to drive up the the number of users because you've got a lot of people going into libraries um, to to use a tool like this. Um, we've also had uh, uh, partnerships with NGOs like Sea uh, Choice and and the David Suzuki Foundation that has used its volunteer network across Canada, uh, along with Life scanner kits, to uh, sample food um, at uh, at grocery stores and, and restaurants across Canada to do a uh, Canada-wide study uh, for the incidence of food fraud and, and mislabeling. So um, those kinds of cases obviously lead to a lot more people uh, using it because it's funneled through a central agency and distributed to a large number of individuals.
1: So that's around 4000 people across Canada and
0: the US. Um across Canada and the US, but we also have uh, a project in South Africa where uh life scanner is used to detect invasive species. The Department of Environmental Affairs um uh has been using LifeScanner scanner for the last couple of years to uh equip their volunteer network um and their agents when they do a sting operation or when they when they scan borders for invasive species they can use life scanner because it's easy to use to collect the the samples and and get it identified at a central facility and then distribute that data to where where it's needed so uh really just three countries where it's available right now
1: why do you think individuals, and I'm speaking specifically about individuals that aren't associated with a program or an organization are interested in participating in this project?
0: it's It's really unusual. Um, uh, uh, it's an unusual reason. There seems to be this pent-up uh, uh, thirst for knowledge about about life and and we see it come out uh, in in young people, but Um, often when they're out in the wild and have, have questions, especially elementary school kids, questions about what, uh, what this flower is, what that bird is. Um, but we tend to, as we grow up, we tend to give up, um, because those, those, uh, the questions are plenty, but the answers aren't as easy to get. So when, um we make it easy for people to identify things. It's like introducing a new Google um, where you can you can do these searches and have questions answered. And usually once you ask and answer one question, um it opens up the door to a lot more questions that you would then uh go out and ask. So it's I think it's tapping into this biophilia and biocuriosity that is naturally found in, in humans.
1: And on the flip side of that question, why are you interested in involving the public in DNA barcoding?
0: Well, DNA barcoding was originally um, originally created to address what we call a taxonomic gap, which which was uh, a challenge in the scientific community where um, there was a dwindling pool of experts who could describe new species and who could identify species Uh, so we wanted to address that gap and uh, dna barcoding did a fantastic job of uh doing the, the the first part which was identifying species but um in later years it was found that it could actually um demark separations between species and thus um identify new species and this was uh uh, a method that I'd worked on with Paul Hubert, who's uh, the creator of DNA barcoding, uh, a system called bins or barcode index numbers um, essentially assigns new species a serial number before it has a name because the DNA sequences will tell you there's a new species there, um, but it does not match anything that's uh, that's known so um, DNA barcoding was created to 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 fix a knowledge gap and it seemed to me that the knowledge gap spread was uh was existing well beyond the scientific community the knowledge gap existed in industry it existed in society um, so where it existed in industry uh, that led to um, bad policing of bioproducts like seafood um, and nutraceuticals and uh, where uh, it existed in society it led to a lack of uh, or a diminished appreciation for biodiversity and the wealth of biodiversity that existed so in in my backyard um visually i could probably only identify uh a couple dozen different species but if i went out there and started collecting and especially if i brought in dna based identification i could probably collect hundreds um of of species and there's a possibility that there are some New undiscovered species uh, running around in in my backyard as well, um, and when we did this, uh, uh, you know, when we went out to school kids to go out and collect species, um, they found uh, uh, you know dozens of new species who are previously unencountered species because most species are small and have been overlooked by uh, traditional searches, uh, but from the scientific community because they just look like little brown things or they're um just uh hiding in plain sight because they blend into the background uh and it's a tremendous effort to document the life on the planet um it's one that that requires engagement of um of not just scientists but uh citizens and 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 elementary school kids and and corporations because everyone has an uh, a stake in maintaining the diversity on the planet
1: Okay, so walk me through the process of using the life scanner Species Identification Kit. So you order the kit, you get the kit through the mail. Um, mm-hmm. What's inside the kit? Let's start with that.
0: Sure, what's inside the kit? There are a couple of different versions of, this kit, uh, of the kit, but um, what's inside the kit is uh, two or four uh, sampling vials, and each sampling vial has a uh, globally unique QR code on it um, and has a... Uh, DNA preservative as a fluid inside it. It's also one that's non-flammable and non-toxic and one that's safe to ship through the mail. And so that's that's a critical aspect of this. Um, uh, and uh, along with that are a pair of uh, plastic tweezers, um, a biohazard bag and an instruction sheet on how to collect. Then what you would do once you received the kit and looked at what was in there uh you could go on to the iTunes store and download the mobile app or go on to the web on livescanner.net um and register your kit on on the mobile application. So you could go with the mobile phone or the mobile application. Um, and then you'd go hunting. So if you uh if you already had the kit and went out into the wild or went into a backyard and saw that there was a pest eating uh, uh your tomatoes and you couldn't identify it uh with google searches you could grab it with a pair of tweezers toss it into one of the vials and close it um, the bug does wiggle a little bit so what we recommend is uh, you know put it in the in the freezer or the fridge um, because that's a, a much much more uh quick death of, of the insect um and then you'd just shake it around a little bit, turn it upside down, leave it for five minutes, and uh, scan the vial with the mobile app. It's got a an image-based barcode scanner, and you'd enter information about it. So you'd take a picture of the organism uh, in the vial, or if it's still outside, you could take it before you put it in the vial, um, and you'd uh, enter what you thought the species was and... And what you observed about the species as well as a photograph of where you found the species. So if that organism was on a tomato plant, it's very useful to know that it was found on a tomato plant because then we could infer its um, ecological role as a pest on on that particular plant. But then once you have that information entered, the uh, mobile app or the web app would instruct you to submit the sample. You'd throw it in the biohazard bag, seal it. Um, Put it back in the return envelope, throw it in the mail, and about um seven to ten days later, uh you'd get the identification showing up on your mobile app and you could explore it. Um and you would explore it in a couple of different ways. One, you'd get to see the actual DNA sequence that's there, um, which which is interesting. Um, uh, but then you'd also see where else that species was found. Uh you would see which countries it was found in, as well as a distribution map, um, and also um, how much that that data point contributed to the knowledge about that species. So if it was the one hundredth data point for that species, um, then it's a small contribution. But if it's the fifth contribution of that species or the first occurrence of it in um, in a continental area or in a province or a state, that's a very important contribution um, uh, because it could indicate an invasive or uh, an introduced uh, introduced species. Uh, we had um, one such case where uh, an individual had opened a box of or a bag of pistachios and found uh, a worm inside one of the pistachios. Threw it in a live scanner vial, submitted it. I was analyzing, came back with a species, and they contacted the producer to say I found a bug in there, and they said it happens from time to time. It's most likely this it's this species a known pest of, of pistachio in California where it was grown, um, but the DNA barcode said it was a different species, one that was usually found in Costa Rica, indicating uh, an import or. Uh, a migration of that species, either due to climate change or um, human transport. So um, there are some interesting outcomes of, uh, of these. Once you get an identification, there are lots of steps that you can do to to better understand uh, what's going on with, with that species in that place.
1: What if you wanted to sample DNA from something larger than an insect or a worm? Is that possible with the kit?
0: It is. Um, and so... Uh, some people are have been interested in sampling fur that they found on the ground um, and you could you could take the fur and put that in. Or a feather for bird identification. Many birds will leave behind feathers. Uh, certainly you you could get a hold of the bird and uh, and pull off a feather, but it's so much better to grab a feather from a nest or one that's fallen on the ground. And for a feather you'd snip off the, the uh the root, if you will. Um, of the feather and toss that in. You wouldn't need the, the whole feather. Most of the, the cells that we would need are in, uh, in the base of the feather. Um, with, with fur, um, you just want to make sure that the fur was clean and, and separated from any debris. And then you could shove the the fur in there. Um, if, I mean, if you really wanted to get at a mammal, uh, you could swab the inside of its mouth. (laughs) Uh, certainly I wouldn't recommend this for large mammals like bears or, uh, or, or big cats, but, um, just a Q-tip, a sterile Q-tip could be swabbed and broken off and thrown into the vial and that's, that's quite enough. Uh, certainly if you're looking at fish, uh, you could, you could get a piece of fish. Any bit of tissue would, uh, would suffice. But you'd want it to be pure tissue, uh, free of other mixtures because uh, the method that we're using um is first generation dna sequencing where you want uh, a pure sample uh using second or third generation dna sequencing you could deal with a mixed sample um, like for example ground meat or a dredge so you could scoop up a bunch of a uh, bunch of material from soil and throw that in for next generation sequencing um we do have next-generation sequencing capabilities, and there is a kit, but it's it's fairly relegated because it's more expensive. Um, it's relegated to more um, uh, very specific applications, uh, such as uh, uh, eDNA or um, uh, for or environmental DNA sampling.
1: And how would you sample DNA from a plant?
0: So we do have a we do have a specific kit for for plants. Um, and it's used uh, uh, quite quite heavily. Um, uh, essentially, we don't have a liquid in there. Um, uh, the, the it's the same vial, but it has um, color uh, sensitive um, uh, silica beads. So for a plant, you would just do a leaf snip, and you could uh, you could throw it in. The key thing with plants is to desiccate it as quickly as possible. Uh, water is the enemy of DNA because once you leave DNA in uh, in water, you could get bacterial infections. You could get fungal infections, which will consume uh, the the material that you're actually trying to trying to sequence. So the moment you desiccate it, then it's uh, it's quite viable for DNA sequencing.
1: Since there's a, a limited number of tests within each kit, I think it's about two or four for each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what types of samples would you say are a priority?
0: Um certainly insect samples are our priority uh for, for for a few important reasons one um insects are the largest uh group of uh of organisms on the planet when it comes to diversity uh, we know the least about them uh we know a lot about mammals we know uh, a lot about fish but um and and birds are very well studied but insects are are largely understudied even though a lot of uh investment has gone into studying them um insects also have a big impact on on our lives bees for example are critical for agriculture uh, a substantial percentage of of agriculture depends on on bees for uh for pollination um other insects um are are problematic as uh as pests, agricultural pests, um, uh, pests, uh, for important, uh, timber crops and other production, uh, and in addition, insects are well known as vectors for disease, whether it's West Nile or, um, uh, or, uh, uh Borella, uh, uh, with Lyme disease, and, and, and ticks. So, um, insects are a really good target for, um, both positive and uh, negative cases, but our understanding of the distribution and, and identity of insects uh, around us are, are really important.
1: Is it possible to collect a DNA sample from an insect without killing the entire organism?
0: Um, it is, but it's exceedingly challenging. Um, so, for example, uh, butterflies are a group of insects that we don't really want to uh damage and we you know it's it's a shame to to try and get a butterfly into uh, uh into a vial um so uh usually uh, we can do with just a leg um a should be able to manage uh without a leg or um uh you can you can swab uh the the wings and and getting uh some of the scales off the uh the wings if uh if you can get a hold of a butterfly. Usually if you just put a butterfly in a uh in a bag for for a few minutes you'll find scales have fallen to the bottom so that that should be sufficient. But um, for the purpose of, of collecting this knowledge, usually you, it's better to have the whole organism. One of the reasons it's valuable to have the whole organism, especially if it's an unknown organism, is then it can become a voucher where it joins a collection as a reference organism for that species. And considering that we often find new species, it's beneficial for, for science to have a representative of that species for, um, for additional DNA analysis and for, uh, description of of the physical attributes of the organism.
1: How do you expect people to use this app outside of learning the identification of, of the samples they collected?
0: Um, so there are uh, there are some uh, very practical applications beyond education and and curiosity and contribution to science. So um, so one one area where we found a big interest in in Life scanner is is around food fraud. Um so where we're seeing it being used is uh, uh some seafood production companies are looking at using this to certify their their food supply chain or their seafood supply chain and basically say that they've tested it you know with live scanner and DNA barcoding um and and can provide that certification to uh to their consumers um but also consumers could themselves um confirm from a particular retailer where um if you were to uh, check a retailer for how rigorous their supply chain is you know a common common substitution is to replace um to put in tilapia with a more expensive um uh, uh white white fish um like potentially sole or or something else um so it's a good way to, to collect that information then also share it. So I sort of envision this as a trip advisor where um, if one person collects that information and shares it broadly on social media or on our system, it starts to create a ranking system where um, others can go in and verify as well. So you, you you don't need to test every plate before you eat it. But if a few people were to test restaurants and and retailers, then that information would influence other people's purchasing behavior and also influence the purchasing behavior of the buyers um, at the retailers and the restaurants, so that they would ensure invest more in ensuring that they have um, more accurate uh, supply chains.
1: So the Life Scanner project actually consists with uh, some programs past and current programs that I assume the data is being used for, and what I think you've been getting out previously. Can you um, describe in a little bit of detail what these programs are?
0: Sure. Um, so the the seafood testing program is actually uh, quite active, um, and uh, so there are a few different groups of people involved in that. So one is Sea um, Choice and the David Suzuki Foundation, um, where they employ adult volunteers to go in and collect uh, data from across Canada. And they summarize the data and labeling information and submit it to uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency so that they could make this data available to influence policy. The other is, uh, so coming at it from the other side, is Let's Talk Science, which is an NGO that's focused on STEM education. Uh, they employ life scanner kits with... Uh, uh with uh, high schools and uh and and sometimes elementary schools to engage them in this sort of testing and what that does is gives the students an appreciation and exposure to molecular biology as well as doing things like market analysis and um and uh experimental design for surveys so that data comes in as well and feeds into the same pool um we've also got a partnership with the captain planet foundation in the u.s that works with schools there uh to to do a similar uh sort of project and um we've done work with oceana canada um again using adult volunteers to to collect information to to pull that together but all of this data starts to approach a critical mass where we can we can build out a framework for um as as a guide for uh for shopping and risk that's associated with it. Um, we haven't reached a critical mass yet, but uh, as this data starts to accumulate, uh, I believe that we will be able to provide those kinds of recommendations at some point.
1: Are there other types of projects you're planning to use this data for? i maybe um, something to do with wildlife crime um, uh, or something else along those lines.
0: Yeah, so we do have... a. Uh, uh, we do have a wildlife crime project underway. Uh, it, it's not in Canada. It is in, in South Africa. So, um, we've, we've partnered with a couple of different agencies there. Um, the uh, South African, um, police services, the National Prosecutorial Agency, and the Department of Environmental Affairs. And we've got our academic hub at the University of Johannesburg with some great Great partners there, and so essentially, what um, what we're doing there is trying to enable um, uh, uh, law enforcement agents to be able to quickly uh, detect cases of wildlife crime because it's quite rampant in in South Africa and um, puts not just the uh, the wildlife at risk, but also the livelihoods of uh, of the local population. There's a a substantial percentage of, of the GDP that depends on ecotourism. And as the population of wildlife goes down or, um, is, um, uh, is poached, uh, then you, uh, you see a proportional reduction in that, that GDP, which affects, affects people. So, um, there we're looking to create a low cost, um, accessible, low training solution where officers can collect samples and um, get identifications and quickly move to to prosecution and there's a there's a component of life scanner that's um, being developed called the life scanner lab in a box where um, we want to actually take this big genomics framework that exists in um, in in large laboratories and 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 reduce it to be able to be um, deployed on a small desk um, and can be packaged into uh, one cubic foot. So all the components really need to fit inside roughly a one cubic foot uh, space. So... um, and and we've deployed the first version of that and, and it's meant to be easy to use and does everything that a traditional lab would but is focused only on producing the dna barcode and producing an identification and doing it quickly so that solution essentially goes from sample to answer in 6 hours which is the time frame needed so that you can detain an individual um because you have to you know there uh when it comes to wildlife crime there's a whole a um, uh, whole additional set of complexities around um, the rights of the individual that you're detaining, that you have to deal with. Speed is is necessary, and accuracy is also necessary, so that you can uh, detain the individual um, and collect the evidence with sufficient rigor that you can ensure prosecution. So there are multiple angles to this, and so we've we've developed uh, the lab in the box with the same principle of accessibility and ease of use. Uh, so that with with one week of training, a um, uh, a graduate, uh, obviously with a biology background and with a focus on molecular biology, from uh, uh, a local program should be able to utilize the uh, the lab in the box to be able to conduct uh, forensic tests either at the airport or um, at uh, at a police station or or a uh, border control station so that they could quickly get these identifications
1: that is very exciting so my last question for you is where can our listeners go to learn more about the life scanner project
0: well you could go to um, you could go to LifeScanner.net, which is the the website where uh, life scanner kits are available but also uh, the results of our programs so there's a programs page on the LifeScanner scanner website where you can see uh, data from and access data from all the programs that I've talked about. Um, some programs are still ongoing, so the data is only released after it's vetted, um, and, and approved with, with our partners, uh, to be released to the public. But that's, that would be the place I'd recommend you go.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Sujeevan.
0: All right. Such a pleasure.
1: If you want to learn more about Merdad Hachipa Abai or Sujeevan Ratna Singham, You can check out their links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.